It's good to be here with you again. Uh, as Elbert said, I was a member here in 2007 to 2009, and uh, as we were driving over here, I was like, man, I'm so glad that they paved that road outside, because I remember on our way, <laughs> you had to pay so much money for a car tag, and then, you, you know, and then, anyway, we had to replace our windshield like five times while I was in seminary. Um, we'll be in James chapter 5 today. James was such a, uh, such a sweet letter that, that I preached through the last two years of um, my pastorate at Trinity Family. And it was really, really sweet because James is talking about trials and, and how we understand trials and what we're called to do and to be during trials. <clears throat> and, you know, during that time in 2019, I had to take a sabbatical, and that was probably the most trial-filled time of my life. And then to come back from that sabbatical and then COVID hits and, you know, all of the conflict in our country, and that was a huge trial. And so it's just really great that, I mean, it took two years to, to travel five chapters in the Bible, right? But it was fitting. And so we'll be in chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, and I'll read it now. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth... And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Lord Jesus Christ, will you please bless the reading and the preaching of your word in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, there's this whole idea of, not, tri not idea of trials, but these, these brothers and sisters that James is writing to are in a dispersion. They've been dispersed. They're scattered. And we all know kind of what a scattering feels like, don't we? Like, um, I mean, if you're scattered because you're six feet apart, to where you're scattered that you can't, uh, commune normally like you, like you want to, to where you're scattered if, you know, you can't travel by airplane or, or whatever, there's a sense in which being scattered is a trial in itself. Even the fact that I can't see your faces right now, there's a, there's a, there's a disconnect, right? And I find myself every time I look out, I, I want to see your faces, and I, I'm also remembering Paul, like in the, in the scriptures where he's like, I, I long to be with you. You know, he had to go. He couldn't be in their presence, but there was a, a dispersion. But he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And I think this is fitting because we are in an age, in a day, where I think our country, and this, is, this has probably been preached up here a lot, that we are in trials right now of various kinds and he says for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness in other words there's a testing going on the trial is sort of refining it's a fire that that is aiming at something beautiful but it's covered that something beautiful is covered and it's got stuff mingled in with it that when the fire burns it 
it, it uncovers it and it burns all of those things away so that what you have is something that's pure. Something that's, that's cleaner than it was before. And it said, let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And what James means here when he says perfect, complete, lacking in nothing is he, he's saying he wants us to be he wants his brothers and sisters in Christ to be wholehearted. It's the same wholehearted in the first and second commandment that love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love Him from and with your whole heart. It's the same thing that you know, your spouse wants when we love each other, right? We, we want all of you. You say, am I getting all of you? You're like, no, you're getting some of me, but there's another part of me that's sort of hidden somewhere. And that's not, that's not what we want, right? And Jesus is after all of us. He wants us to be whole. Because when we are whole, then we can actually glorify God the way we were meant to glorify God. We can image Christ to the world the way that Christ has us in the world. We are in the world for Christ. Revealing to the world who Christ is, His kindness, His holiness, His patience, His goodness, His steadfastness, His love, His atonement, His, his beauty, His excellencies, all of those things. And so trials will actually bring this, bring this about somehow, and that's why we are to count them all joy, consider them joy. Because there's a wholeness and a completeness that happens. But at the end, James says, Is anyone, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. And you have to ask yourself the question, what does this wandering look like? Like, how do you know that someone is wandering? Especially when in Scriptures you've got wanderers who are sort of downtown, they're not Christians, and they don't like the Bible, and they're telling you that they don't like the Bible, they don't want to hear about Jesus. But then you've got wanderers who are in the church, they know the Bible better than you do. How do you know if somebody's wandering? Wondering from what truth? Were the Pharisees wandering from the truth? Well, the tax collectors. Some are more obvious than others. And so what James says here is, is anyone among you wonders from the truth, and if someone, if someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And so you get the sense of that a wanderer is someone who is in sin. He says, is anyone among you wonders from the truth? Now what is the truth? And why would we wander during trials? Right? So during a trial, we, we are like prone to wonder, especially during a trial. When things get chaotic, I mean, let me ask you this. When things are chaotic in your house, is it easier to be a Christian or more difficult? Right? Like when you see disturbing news, are you more prone to be a Christian to do what you've heard in church or are you prone to wonder? 
I mean, I think we're prone to wonder, at least I am. But wonder from the truth. What truth is that? And so if you read the book of James, there are many different truths that he talks about. There's the truth of the Word. What he talks about is the perfect law of liberty, which is, which is able, and the implanted Word, which is able to save your soul. There's a sense in which the Word of God about God and the truth about God and who Jesus is and who He is for us, that He's forgiven us and that we are children of God. And there's another wondering. There's a, there's a wondering from ourselves. And so when things get really crazy in the house and, and you get into an argument with somebody that you love and they look at you and go, you must be out of your mind. Nobody's ever said that, huh? Or like, who are you right now? Like, you're not being yourself. Or how about this? You look at them, you know something's wrong, and so you're like, what's wrong? And they go, nothing. Ain't nothing wrong. You know something's wrong. And so there's a sense in which we need each other to be whole. The Lord wants us to be whole, unhidden, to be ourselves and not to be somebody else, to be who we were made to be in the image and likeness of God and not to be the one in whose image we want to create ourselves in the image of someone else. Elbert said earlier that you become what you worship, right? There's a sense in which if you've become what you've worshipped, there's a sense in which, man, we've left the truth about who we are. And then there's a truth about reality. James talks about orphans and widows. He talks about the poor and the rich dwelling together and how hard that can be. He talks about the tendency of, of leaders to show partiality to the wealthy and to neglect the poor. Because quite frankly, it's easier sometimes. He talks about the fact that trials do exist. He talks about the fact, if you read James, that it's really difficult to believe that God really means well for you during a trial. I mean, practically speaking, we all know the truth that God is good, that He's sovereign, that He's providential, all things are under His control, but isn't it difficult for like your soul and your, and your body to, to realize that? That you've heard that He's good, but you go out and everything is chaotic. And so just like the psalmist, you're like, I mean, have you forgotten me? So you can hear in the Scriptures that He never forgets you. He bottles all your tears. And then David is writing, how long will you forget me? And so if we're honest, there's this, there's this tension inside of us. That the truth about reality really tempts us to wonder. Trials are hard. Reality is both beautiful and it's broken. And that's really difficult to deal with. Something that's hard is the fact that I love being here, but I want to go home. Something that's hard and 
about reality is that I want to see your face, but it's not safe. Another part about reality is people are conflicted about that. Aren't you? Is this all a hoax? Do mass work? Is the vaccine harmful or helpful? I want you to notice that I did not make an affirmation on any of those things. <laughs> and so he's saying, my, bro my brothers, if anyone among you, anyone among this body, wanders from the truth, Anyone among you who knows the truth wanders from it. In other words, it's people who actually know the truth that you wander from it. When someone brings him back, but I want to ask the question, why is it our tendency to wander from the truth? And why is it our tendency to wander from the truth during trials? what I've come to find out, and if you just study the, the nature of trials, is that one thing about trials is they don't ask your permission to hit you. Trials are, trials are dirty. Trials are sort of the, when you watch Bloodsport, it's, it's the guy who cheats, you know? That was a long time ago. Jean-Claude Van Damme. This. He sucker punches you. Trials sucker punch you. They sneak up behind you, they don't ask your permission, and they take you out. They turn off the lights, they've got all the weapons, you have none of them. They don't care if you're prepared. Death doesn't let you know it's coming. Most of the time. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you think about a virus, it is impacting us. And no matter how badly we wanted it to stay wherever, just away from here, here it is. It's reality. Trials. And if you study further, what do trials take away? They take away our sense of safety. If you just study human nature, if you study the promises of God, you will find that, that humans find deep comfort and safety and, and, and security. God says that He's our refuge. He's our fortress. He is our safety. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, seated, hidden safely in Him. But trials come in and they shatter the things in this world that we idolize, that we think actually give us safety. You see, we were created in God's image, but in our fall, we are running from God. We don't actually trust God to be safe, so we create our own safety. 
And so Adam and Eve, they didn't trust God to be safe, and so they sewed fig leaves together and they covered themselves. Right? They covered the image of God. So if you, if, if, you, if you know what the plan of God is to fill the earth with His glory so that image bearers would be fruitful and multiply and they would multiply and multiply and they would work and keep a garden. And what happens when you work and keep a garden? It grows. Especially like gardens that have viney things. Like I remember I had a watermelon garden in my yard when I was a kid and it went from being like this to like filling up the entire yard because I worked it and I kept it and it just grew and it grew. We are to work to keep the garden, be fruitful and multiply. And as this garden grows, we populate the garden with more image bearers. And all of a sudden, the whole earth will be filled with image bearers and shining like a beacon in the universe, the glory of God. But in our fall, we take a fig leaf. And if we're beaming the glory of God, the fig leaf covers it. We are a light, but we hide it under a basket. We cover with fig leaves that we think give, make, give, make us safe. We cover ourselves with fig leaves that think we give ourselves, that think that we cover ourselves with fig leaves that we think will actually give us power and control. But we want security and safety. We also want power and control. Amen? How many of you just love to be out of control? <laughs> Would you like control today? Nope, don't want any of it. And we also create fig leaves as we're running from God that we believe other people really like so that they will like and love us. Right? We want people to like us. We have a deep need for love and affection. And when we don't trust that we're getting that from God, we will create ways we will create coverings. I will create a facade for you to get you to like me. Some of that is I'll hide my sin, but some of that is I'll hide what, what is actually very good about me because I don't trust that it'll actually be liked. I mean, what if I'm a crazy artist in a room full of engineers? Right? Like... I'm coloring all over the wall and you're drawing an I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just the analogy that came to me. And so our tendency is to wonder why? Because we work so hard to cover the image of God in us and trials come in and they shatter our coverings. They destroy every pr protective layer. They are the lightning bolt that comes in and burns up our fig leaves. They threaten everything that gives us a sense of safety, a false sense of power and control, and a false sense of being liked and affirmed. And so here's why we don't like trials and why we wonder when they come. is because they make us feel vulnerable. Trials make us feel insecure. Have any of you felt insecure lately? 
Trials make us feel powerless. Like nothing will do, nothing we do will affect change. Do you feel powerless to change everything that's bad? Do you feel powerless to just make things right? How many of you have felt deeply alone during this pandemic? I know singles who have had to quarantine and they are, I've got friends and they are just aching in loneliness. And so there's a, there's a split second when the lightning strikes of a trial and it hits your body, it hits your ears without your permission that you and I, when they hit us, we feel poor. We feel powerless like a sojourner. We feel lonely like a widow. We feel extremely misunderstood like a sojourner. We feel as if we have no hope in the world because no one is for us like an orphan. And our immediate tendency when we feel out of control, when we feel like an orphan and a widow, our immediate tendency is to run as fast as we can away from that poverty and do anything we can to never feel it again. If you look in Luke chapter 13, this is a, a good representation of a trial and how people responded to it. Luke chapter 13, verse 1, it says, There were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so get this, these people, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase heavily, of course, these people were worshiping, and Pilate had soldiers come in and murder them. And they mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices, sort of mocking them. And these people ran to Jesus to tell Him about it. And so this would be something akin to having a church shooting, but one that was sanctioned by the government. The church shootings make you feel vulnerable. Most churches now have a strategy to handle anyone who comes in and pulls out a gun. So yes, they do make us feel vulnerable. And so these people would have felt extremely vulnerable, extremely powerless. And we know that they felt powerless because this is what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? And this is how people make sense of tragedies like this. This is how people make sense of that. These people were obviously either not prepared or they were worse sinners because that's why something bad happened to them. Now, we know that sounds ridiculous, but we do this. If I do bad things, then I'm going to get bad. I'm going to get bad results. Therefore, I need to stay away from doing bad and stupid things so that nothing like this will happen to me, so that I will not be vulnerable to something like this. Right? It kind of makes sense 
that there's some sort of order to the tragedy. But what Jesus is saying is there is no order to this tragedy. It happened. The reality is that it happened. The reality, if you look at Scripture, is that, you know what, bad things do happen to good people. And we know that there's no one righteous, but in a sense, there's not a straight line from someone's bad action to a bad reaction, right? And so then, what does he say? He has the audacity to look at these people They're scared to death. They're saying Pilate has murdered folks in the church. And he looks at them and says, you need to repent. Like, could you imagine that? How many of you would just be like, you know, Jesus, you are so, you are the Messiah I've been waiting for. Like that, I mean, we would probably have a hard time with him, at least initially. That is not what we were coming to hear from Jesus. What we were coming to hear from Jesus, what these people were probably coming to hear from Jesus, is Jesus going, what? Are you serious? I'm going to go take care of Pilate right now. This will never happen again. But that's not what Jesus did. The fact is, is that these people were coming to Jesus. Not necessarily because they cared about what Pilate was doing, but because they felt vulnerable. They didn't want to get rid of the injustice. They wanted to get rid of their own vulnerability. They didn't want to feel poor. They didn't want to feel insecure. They didn't want to feel powerless. They didn't want to feel as if someone could come and murder them. And so what is Jesus saying here when he's saying repent? You see, a lot of times when tragedy happens or trials happen, we get strategic, don't we? When tragedies happen in our country, we immediately go to the authorities. We immediately go to the government and make sure that they are strategizing on how to make sure that this doesn't happen again so that we will be safe. We immediately go into thoughts of justice, thoughts of anger, immediately. But if you read the Beatitudes, there's a long way from blessed are the poor to blessed are the peacemakers. There's a lot of things that need to happen before we get to actual peacemaking. There's an inner poverty that needs to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What Jesus is saying here is that, look, this trial hits you in a place not that's bad, but that is sacred. This this tragedy stripped away all of your fig leaves. You felt vulnerable. I want you to remain vulnerable. Don't cover yourself back up. Because when you are most vulnerable, you are most glorious.
And only Christ can make this happen. Only Christ can make sense out of a trial. Only Christ can can look at us and call us to repent, but actually pave the way for our repentance. Only Christ can bring us back home. And what He's saying here is that, look, the place inside that you are running away from, the person that you are running away from, the fact that you are losing your mind right now, calm down. He could have very well been saying to them, I'm calling you to do something about it. I'm going to work to resolve tragedies like this through you. Greater works will you do when I'm gone. Didn't he say something like that? And so there's this wondering that they were doing. They were wandering away from the truth. And Jesus called them to come back to it, to repent. Now, if we go back to James, if we are wandering from the truth, wandering from who we really are, because here is the truth we really are poor. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. Without Jesus, we really are insecure. We're not with security. We are dependent. Without Jesus, there's a a sense in which we are not in control. Even though we have access to the One who is. And there's also a sense in which you know, you're not going to be liked by everybody. But you are loved by God. And you are loved by Him and you are beautifully and wonderfully made. So there's no need to cover yourself. And so I'm going to ask you, how are you handling your own poverty during this during this season are you wondering from it are you making strategies not to be vulnerable not to be poor or insecure is that your number one thought can you bless your poverty instead of curse it Have you felt like a sojourner? Have you felt like an orphan inside? Or even in reality? Have you felt like a widow? Where you felt deeply alone? without love in the world and without hope of love in the world and really scared to love someone else because it's just going to turn out that way again. And so it's easy to run from the truth. It's so easy to run from the truth. 
What I love about this passage in verse 19 is when someone wanders, there's someone needed to bring them back. It, does, it doesn't say, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, scream at them to come back. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, it doesn't say, write them a letter and tell them that they're wandering and say, do what you've heard. It says there's someone that we are actually called to bring our brother or sister back. We are being called here by God through His Word to bring back a sinner from wandering. But again, what does that look like? We have an idea of what it looks like if we have an idea that someone brought us back. We know how to bring others back because we know that we've been brought back. Now, if you think you brought yourself back, you might not know that you've been brought back. And don't get this, don't get this confused. We are prone to wonder, which means we are prone to pride. And prone to pride means that we really think we brought ourselves back. And so you look at somebody else and say, I did it, you should too. But Jesus actually sees us even in a circumstance like this where what they wanted was actually a really good thing. Pilate needed something handed to him. But he was able to see through that. Just like the brother that came to him whose father had died, right? And he came to Jesus because his brother had, his brother had uh, taken him for the inheritance. And doesn't that happen often after a funeral? Siblings quibble and even go to law, go to, go to court over the inheritance? Why do you think that happens? And why do you think that Jesus refused to get into the middle of it? Probably had something to do with the guy needed to weep over the fact that he lost his father and his brother rather than weep over the fact that he was getting taken advantage of. But Jesus knows what it's like to be poor. Jesus knows what it's like to feel like an orphan. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think he felt like an orphan? Do you think he felt alone? When he came to his people and they rejected him and they did not embrace him, do you think he felt like a sojourner? Do you think he felt like an immigrant that nobody was speaking the same language as he was? Nobody was thinking on the same plane than he was? Nobody recognized him as one of their own? Do you think that he would have felt longing in his soul to have um, his bride when he went to the wedding of Cana? 
And he was actually at a wedding. Single folks, when you go to a wedding, aren't you like, don't you like get, get the desire to, to be with someone, to be married, to like have a lifelong love? Isn't that why you, we throw the bouquet? And the, who's getting married next? Jesus was well acquainted with poverty. He was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. In his humanity, he refused to abandon his poverty. And if you look at the life of Christ in the Gospels, he was invited to leave his own poverty all the time. Why don't you take yourself down from that cross? Why don't you speak out to this stone to become bread? Don't be the real Son of God that we know that you are, but actually leave your mission and purpose in life. Leave who you are and become another Christ that, the, you, know, that, that, that you can take over all the thrones and have all the dominions. Show everybody that you're the Son of God. Jump off a building and have the angels like catch you. Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. You don't think he struggled with the temptation to want to leave his poverty, to leave the fact that he was about to be crucified and he was asking his father for any other way and the fact that he longed for that and, and actually wanted also to have the joy that was set before him was such a tension in his body that his body actually sweat blood. Did you know that Jesus got very emotional about that? And he actually looked at his friends in the eyes and said, you know what, I am sorrowful beyond belief. And instead of sort of isolating himself in his sorrow, what did he do? He asked for community. Please remain with me just for an hour. And even before his crucifixion, what did he do? He was like, man... He asked all of his friends, even the one that was going to betray him, he was like, man, can we have dinner together? And can we commune over food? He didn't leave his poverty. He didn't leave who he was. He was always in communication with the Father. There was a sense in which, yes, he knew who he was and he knew his Father's will. And his Father's will was to do the work that he came to do. His Father's will, his, his food was to do the will of His Father. Me and Elber were talking about the other day, and Elber was like, His food was to do the will of the Father. He knows what it's like to be tempted to make these vulnerabilities go away. He knows what it's like to just change outside circumstances so He doesn't have to feel those tensions, so that He doesn't have to sweat blood, so that He doesn't have to be crucified. He's been tempted in every way like we are, yet He was without sin. He never covered up who He was. When we get Jesus, we get all of Jesus. Amen? We don't get some of Him. We don't get half of Him. When we get Jesus, we don't get all of Jesus, but something hidden behind His back. 
And did you know that that is the root cause of disbelief in the Bible? The fact that got we, the, the serpent got Adam and Eve to believe that he gives everything, but he's got something withholding behind his back. That's why when John talks about fellowship in the Bible, he says, you know what? I want to have fellowship and our fellowship is with the Father and we want to have fellowship so that our joy might be made full. God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. That's why James says He's the Father of lights and in Him there is no shadow of turning at all. That's why He also says, if anyone lacks wisdom and, uh, and if anyone lacks wisdom in this world, let him ask God who gives generously. And do you know what that word generously means? Single-minded, above board, not withholding, not holding anything behind his back. When you get him, you get all of him. There's not another agenda in the background. Oftentimes we come to Jesus and, and you people, I mean, I know I came to, oftentimes we come to church and we confess Jesus with our mouth, but we got another agenda in the background. And you know what that agenda is? Make my problems go away so that I don't have to suffer anymore, so that I don't have to be vulnerable anymore. And how long do those people usually stay in church? Not very long. And here's the deal, because we painted a picture of Jesus that he just, gets, he just takes care of trials for the sake of making your vulnerabilities go away. But what James is saying is that Jesus allows trials to come to you for the sake of revealing your vulnerabilities so that you can actually be who you were created to be. Jesus came to us with so much compassion. Jesus knows that orphans are so prone to wonder, but they need to be comforted. Jesus knows that sojourners are in so much pain of being misunderstood, totally misunderstood, and they don't have a home, they don't have a place, they don't know anybody, they don't have a job. He knows they need some security. Jesus knows that widows have a hard time trying to love again. But they just need someone who's steadfast that they know that they can trust and who's going to outlive them. That's why He can bring us back. Because we have a high priest who can sympathize and empathize with us. Now, in this time of a trial, how are you called, specifically made? How are you, and how were you formed in the womb to image God for such a time as this? If you can't bless your poverty, your poverty in spirit, then you will not be able to bless the poverty around you. If you marginalize 
the poor places of your own soul that are actually pretty beautiful and that Jesus is calling you to bless, but if you curse them, you will curse the impoverished places of your city. It is a it is a rule. It is the definition of religion in James when he talks about pure and undefiled religion. What happens on the inside comes out on the outside. Did you know that's the definition? That's what religion is. And so defiled religion is what is true on the inside doesn't come out on the outside. That's defiled religion. That's impure religion. True religion, pure religion, undefiled religion is that which is true on the inside comes out authentically on the outside. That's why we love authenticity so much. That's why we love integrity so much. That's why in most cultures, especially impoverished cultures, authenticity is so important because how many times do you get a smile and it's inauthentic, it's defiled religion, you get a smile up front, but there's some hidden motive in the back. How many times have the poor faced you know, somebody with a lot of money coming in and the only reason the person with money coming in is because they want to obliterate the poor so that they don't have to face their own poverty? Look, if that's confusing to you, it really should be because the serpent is crafty. And we need to know the blueprint of his attack. And so, indeed, to bring a sinner back is to save his soul from death. Because Jesus has saved and paid for our soul in his death. Now, one of my favorite parts of this verse, and I'll end with this, is that he says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, the person being saved from death is the sinner. But the sins that are being covered if, if you look at the language here, it's not just the sinner's sins that are being covered. It's everybody who's involved. Because I guarantee you, when you go after a wanderer and you try to love them, you try to bring them back, you think they're going to go, okay, I'm going with you right now. Yeah, you know. No, some wanderers will slap you. Some wanderers will lie to you. Some wanderers will, will smile and say, yeah, I'll go back, and then you turn your back and they're gone. Some wanderers will say, me wander, you're the wanderer. I don't ever argue like that, by the way. Yeah, you're the one. But it's messy work, isn't it? Because during trials, you're getting people at their most vulnerable spot the most vulnerable time of life. And when people are vulnerable, that's the place where they are most likely to be healed, but it's also the place where they're most afraid they're going to be hurt.
it's like uh, <clears throat> back in Trinity Gardens, man, they're like, they're like pit bulls everywhere. <laughs> they're, they're just everywhere. And uh, Katie was like, oh my gosh, we need to call the pound. I was like, no, we are not that family. We are not going to call the pound. Uh, but anyway, it's like there was one where it was like all chained up and it just, had, it just needed to be like free from this tree because you could tell it was just in misery. But as soon as you got close to it, I mean, you would think if you got any closer, you were going to die. It was absolutely vicious. But it was absolutely very vulnerable as well. I'm so glad that Jesus' patience and his strength overcame my viciousness. Because in his compassion, he understood my vulnerability. And so here's the deal. When we go and we try to bring a wanderer back, especially during this trial, if you try to bring them back geographically, how many of you know, how many people do you know that just haven't been a part of the body for a while? Anybody? There might be some of you watching. I forgot I was being watched. Uh, there might be some of you who are thinking, you know what, this, this, this watching, on, um, watching on the internet is actually pretty nice. My living room is just as good as being in the sanctuary, but here's the deal. No, it's not. And you're in danger of wondering. Like this community just feels good. There's a presence here. But it's messy work, and we need to hear that if we engage in this work, Jesus' blood covers a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, Would you give us comfort? Would you show us the inheritance? Would you satisfy our hunger? Would you give us mercy? Father, would you enable us to see you, to experience you? Would you also show us the reward as we engage in this messy work and hard work of peacemaking. Would you enable us to really experience the kingdom of God that is in our midst? Lord, I pray for this church, this beautiful church, Redeemer Press. I pray for my friend Albert and his family. Pray for all the leaders, all the members, this community. And Father, would you be a very present help in this tremendous time of need and help us to bless our own poverty so that we might actually see and be the kingdom of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.